Are you ready for some football? Tuesday night football? The NFL knew it would have to flex its schedule as never before in order to play this season with teams in their home stadiums. So yes, we had Tuesday night football. One week after we had Monday night football, not only on ESPN, but also on CBS. We'll talk about that and more of the latest twists and turns in this season, unlike any other before it, with NFL writer Ben Fisher on this episode of SBJ Unpacks. I'm Bill King, joined now by our NFL writer, Ben Fisher. Ben, we're talking this Wednesday morning, the morning after we saw Tuesday night football again. We saw Tuesday night football on CBS, the product of this spate of rescheduling that we all knew was coming eventually to a league that's attempting to play its season outside of a bubble. And one of the interesting products of all this is that while it certainly disturbs team routines as they prepare for games and nobody likes the uncertainty, whether it be on the on the field or off the field, it did create a Tuesday night primetime window on CBS for the NFL. And of course, last week you had a primetime window for CBS on Monday night, opposite Monday night football, uh, which it trounced with its marquee matchup of the Chiefs and Patriots. That all raises a really interesting question, I think, around whether a reconsideration of the schedule is something that will come of this. When you think about things that are learned from necessity, the things you have to do to operate through this health crisis, you try some things and some stick. Is this one of those? What do, do you get the feeling that there's any consideration down the line or will be any consideration? Because I think right now they're just trying to get games in and figure out what can go where and how. Um, but down the line, maybe it makes some sense to reconsider whether it's, there's this Sunday marathon of football and one game on Monday and one game on Thursday, or maybe there's some room to breathe. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Look, the feedback on Twitter is people love a 7 o'clock Tuesday game. The game was over by 10 o'clock Eastern, so even earlier for people in other time zones. And it was more football, and it was a national window for CBS. I think the fans, um, you know, from a TV standpoint, really love that. So maybe it's not out of the question, but I would still say the odds would be pretty heavily against that unless the economics were just – so overwhelmingly compelling. The NFL is never going to turn down a big dude check. If there's a market for Tuesday night football, I bet someday there is Tuesday night football. But there, I think there would be quite a bit of inertia against that among the 32 teams. You know, as much as primetime games make everyone a lot of money and it's exciting for some smaller market teams maybe to get that national exposure, there's still a pretty strong sort of base case preference around the league for Sundays at one. That's where your season ticket holders build their traditions around. And that's sort of, you know, football as it's intended. Anything diver- anything that devolves, diverges from that, um, you know, is a disruption to team week-to-week operations. And, you know, everyone's game to do what it takes to make this season happen amid the pandemic. But that seemed, they'd have to make an extremely strong case and not just sort of some commentary on Twitter that Tuesdays are fun. No, I, I would totally agree. But I think what it'll come down to is because there's a there's a cost here, right? I mean, you look at that Chiefs game, that Chiefs Patriots game is a better example than this one, probably, that moved off of Sunday and on to Monday. That was also going to be their, you know, premier game of the day. That was going to be their national game in their big window. Right. And they lost that. And they certainly saw a lower rating as a result of that. So how many eyeballs did you get on that Monday night versus how many you lost on that Sunday? When you do that aggregation, you know, and you come up with a number across the overall audience and 
in a in a in a time when, let's face it, primetime viewing is declining um, precipitously. You know, for entertainment programming, and so if the NFL doesn't go on Tuesday night, somebody else probably will. And if I'm only losing one game a year to a Monday night, one Sunday a year to a Monday night, and I can build that, I mean, if you're if you live in an NFL city, you know that that Monday night game. Um, is a happening in a whole lot of markets, you know, the, the especially with downtown stadiums. I, I think that, you know, certainly no team would want to see five games move to Tuesday night. But if I have one go to Tuesday instead of Monday, I don't know. I, I think maybe it's, I wouldn't see it as the end of the world. The question comes, is there a way around, you know, your, your, your bye weeks, for example, that you could push somebody back to a Tuesday or even a Wednesday? And then have the bye week and then go back onto your normal schedule. Is any of that possible? Again, you think about the rhythms of a team. You think about the rhythms of an organization. Guys are used to having a certain day off and they don't get it. So that's a problem. But I think that maybe, again, I, I wonder, you, you look across baseball, you look across the NBA, you look across the NHL, everybody that has emerged from, you know, that, that has come back has sort of, at the end of all of it, been able to look back at one or two things and said, we'll do things a little differently. And the NFL is not used to doing things differently. I'm not saying it's going to be on TV, but I wonder if, again, they th- this is one opportunity to rethink a lot of stuff. Maybe. I, I mean, I think that what would be more likely than a Tuesday would be a standing Monday night doubleheader. I think that works better and is maybe a middle ground between um, you know totally disrupting team activities you know, the Thursday games, people don't like them because it's so far away from the Sunday-based case on the calendar. And Tuesdays get into a similar issue um, in that it affects your week before it, your week ahead. Um, I think, you know, I know Monday Night Football is supposed to be an exclusive window, but, you know, I thought that night when they had the two games on, it worked reasonably well. It was kind of like the old days in March Madness where, you know, you weren't technically getting more one game at a time, but they staggered it. So you could catch the fourth quarter and still catch the second game before it got too climactic. So that's a thought there. I do think though, that you have to worry about the back end. Last couple of weeks, the Sunday night, Sunday afternoon slates have been a little light on the, on the prestige games. And you start taking like chiefs Patriots and move that from a four thirty window to a Monday night. Um, suddenly it seems like there's a lot of dogs on a Sunday afternoon schedule. And Sunday is the NFL and the NFL owns that day. And they're going to be asking tough questions about, well, if we take all the good stuff and spread it out even more across primetime windows, what are we left for the time that we truly own and have owned for generations? And, you know, there's, you got to put the dog game somewhere, but if all you have are Sunday afternoons of regional sort of low impact on a national level broadcast, that's a problem too. So I don't know how it shakes out. You're asking a good question, but I just think there's a lot of hard questions to get past before they start adding new days. I can see that. We we saw last night, of course, included the Titans, uh, who are finally back. What's the fallout from all that? What's that look like? Well, in a big turn of events, the NFL now seems disinclined to impose serious punishments on the Titans, which, you know, I mean, working the phones last week, everyone's saying, oh, they're going to lower the boom on them, multiple first round draft picks, you know, seven figure fines, maybe even, you know, mid seven figure fines, so suspensions for coaches or staff or something like that. Now, less than a week later, just last night, Goodell said that, um, oh, I don't know exactly what the right quote was, but he strongly suggested that it was not an intentional violation of protocols, which indicates it may be no punishment at all. There's been some speculation that's just because they're having a hard time drawing a direct bright line from a given protocol breach to the outbreak there. 
um, which is, you know, an interesting thing for future outbreaks and how much punishment could really come down because that's a hard thing to do is to draw out who, you know, who knows which droplet of the virus passed from one person to another. Um, the fallout for now is, you know, that there's been what, 10 or 11 games now affected by this outbreak indirectly or directly. And that's pretty unpleasant for everybody, but we may be coming out of the worst of it. Um, the Titans haven't had a positive case in a few days and there was one new one in, um, in Atlanta yesterday, but, uh, at the moment, think this week passes as a relatively chill time on the COVID testing front for the league, knock on wood. So, you know, maybe this is a rear view mirror thing and we're starting to emerge from the worst of this crisis, but that's a big, maybe only valid until tomorrow morning's test result. Exactly. And one can lead to two, but I have to admit um, that we haven't, we generally haven't seen large outbreaks on individual teams. Even when you have the one test or the two tests, you know, after Gilmore, I was thinking, well, they just flew back from a road game and here a guy tests positive and what's that going to lead to? You know, the Patriots shut down their facility for a few days. And oh, by the way, that was another little lesson. You know, the Titans were shut down for how long? The You know, the I, I think we had this assumption going into this, my God, if you close the facility for three days, you can't play. I mean, for however long, because that's three days of not preparing and how could you possibly get ready? Well, it seems that teams seem to be able to prepare. Titans came on, came away last night, you know, with a win against a, what was an undefeated Bills team. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. A lot of jokes on Twitter this morning that may not be jokes that the rest of the league is saying, "Why are we practicing? <laughs> Let's just do this by Zoom and show up to play on Sunday." <laughs> now, I don't know if everyone has a resurgent Ryan Tannehill and a seemingly unstoppable running back in Derrick Henry, so the Titans probably needed a little less practice than most. But still, last night's result upends everything we thought we knew about game preparation. So that could be more important than you think uh, as a lasting legacy. Uh, one other point I wanted to make when you asked sort of what the fallout of this outbreak is, now that it maybe looks like we're on the tail end of it. Um, this flew under the radar screen a little bit, but on Monday, the um, the league issued new protocols with a pretty significant change. They say that now anybody with a high-risk direct exposure to a positive COVID case, whether or not they're symptomatic, whether or not they test positive, is out for five days, which means that the 20 players that traveled on a separate plane to that New England Patriots or New England uh, Kansas City game after the Cam Newton positive would not have been eligible because that would have been within that was a positive test within five days of game. So that makes sense. I think it, you know, gets ahead of this whole incubation period question and the alarm of, you know, knowing that there's players who might well be t- testing positive on Monday or Tuesday playing on Sunday, but that's huge. That really makes this high stakes. If you've got a starting player testing positive after Tuesday of a game week, that goes from maybe a one or two player issue to maybe a 20 player issue without a lot of trouble. So keep an eye on that. That is huge. And that likely more cancellations. If you're going to cancel games over one or two players and over closed facilities, I would think over 20, you're certainly canceling games. Although again, I, I've always looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, guys get injured. You still play. It seems to me at some point the league may look at it and say, you know, you are responsible for the health of your, the health of your team and we're playing and whether we play without 20 players or not. Well, right. As long as you've got the expanded practice squad to cover them, they're going to, you know, the league is, if you can fill the roster, the league's going to make you play, I think, whether, you know, those are pro level, you know, starter level guys or not. But um, also, you know, I think that just drives home also the importance of social distancing inside of league facilities, because a high risk contact is not just any contact. So if you're going by the book and really are diligent about truly keeping people six feet away and there's little sensors they've got on their wrists, 
say that you know you only had four close contacts instead of 20 high risk contacts then that limits the damage to the game so uh, you know that's that's first of all makes it higher stakes but also hopefully just drives home the point that you have to assume everyone you're talking to has has COVID and just hasn't been tested positive yet. So the NFL's chief medical officer now says that the league, you know, has looked at bubbles going back to March, uh, and he still doesn't think it's a good idea. Others think that when the playoffs get here, it's time to move to that bubble, um, as MLB has, for example, with its postseason. Where do you think that ends up? Because certainly there are a lot of different opinions within football around that question. Yeah, I think yesterday the um, the overall takeaway, more than any one quote from the conference call that Alan Sills, the chief medical officer, was on, was that he is strongly disinclined toward any sort of bubble. Um, he thinks that they're you know they don't act, they're not foolproof, and that's true. But I would say the NBA and the NHL would say they're pretty close to foolproof. Yeah, they would. But then also he made the point about, you know, mental and emotional health and that it's damaging to people's lives in different ways to isolate them for an extended period of time. I think if we're really just talking to playoffs, that's what, four weeks at the at the longest, uh, five weeks, I guess. Um, you know, I don't know if that's quite as big a deal. But the message was loud and clear that um, conditions would have to change substantially for the NFL to get to a bubble. I just don't think there's any real appetite for that at the highest levels of the league. And things would have to get a lot worse to change that at this point. Even for the playoffs? Even for the playoffs. I think as of what we know right now, I say I would still wage, set a rather large bet against a playoff bubble. Just off the takeaway from the interviews yesterday. I just, I thought it was interesting. Sean Payton was one of those voices, um, you know, the Saints coach. And that's, you know, when you start to hear coaches going in that direction, um, as opposed to the other direction of, hey, jam all these people in here. We need some crowd noise. Pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. I guess I'll just say that in my experience, some of the least informed commentary and writing about NFL strategic and front office and business decisions comes when the football ops and the business ops sort of blend. That would be true. You know, this reminds me of the draft when we were hearing coaches and GM saying, how could we possibly run the draft remotely? And all the owners and business side people had never even entertained the possibility of delaying it. So it's just different worlds. And while that might make perfect sense from a football mind to do a bubble, that still doesn't change the fact that there's very little appetite from the from the C-suite about that. Speaking of Sean Payton, talk in New Orleans of moving, of moving Saints games to Death Valley, Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, which I, I think gets particularly interesting because there's a little bit of a lever there in play. I, I don't know how serious the Saints are about doing this. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they certainly would get the mayor's attention if they do. And really their complaint is that the mayor is basically you know, not even giving them their day in court um, the league has offered to, to to come down and make a presentation and explain why they think that fans should be allowed. And they're certainly pointing to all the other markets that have opened up, uh, but uh, but but no uh, no movement in New Orleans and sound. And now there may be some movement out of New Orleans and toward Baton Rouge, where uh, there seems to be a, a much more will, much more of a willingness to pack those stands. 
Yeah, um, this noted. This was notable to me because I know that for months, all 32 teams have been having conversations with all 30 markets, and those conversations have not always been friendly. But this is the first time someone really sort of started negotiating in public. Um, there was some hints of that in Cleveland when the Browns put out some statements about, oh, you know, we had hoped to do things when the state wouldn't let us, and they ultimately came to a deal. But this Saints uh, public negotiating gambit of going up to uh, Baton Rouge um, was, you know, a totally, totally new level of sort of rhetorical warfare with the city there. And I think that just shows that the league and teams are growing more confident. They've convinced 15 cities so far, and they expect to have another few in short order, that there is such a thing as safe, uh, safe football attendance under, you know, small numbers and social distancing. They think it's no different from basically going to a target right now in terms of personal risk. City of New Orleans says, hey, you're in a dome. There are no other truly enclosed stadiums that have allowed fans yet. We see that as a different thing. I was trying to game out how serious this thing is for the Saints to move to Baton Rouge. If there really is no room for movement at the city level in New Orleans, I suppose it makes a lot of sense for them just because as we've seen everywhere, college towns seem to be living in a different world from NFL markets when it comes to capacity issues. So I guess it makes sense for them, but I viewed that as a negotiating ploy primarily, not so much a a serious step, but I'm reevaluating that thought by the minute. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's, there's little question that what is going on in college football now could have trickle down uh, impacts on, uh, on any sport playing outside. You know, you you look at, uh, and, and oh, by the way, the baseball playoffs, I mean, you know, again, now you've got into the NLCS, you've got fans welcomed in there. You've got fans welcomed in in smaller numbers elsewhere. I I think that all has to have an impact on these conversations. Now, again, how much of that is going to be dictated of, uh, you know, by the appetite locally? Um, But when you've got states that are aggressively reopening and you look down the road and there's however many people at Death Valley, you know, you just had a, you know, Texas A&M for its game this week had a, had, had a, fairly stout crowd. And what happens? Dan Mullen comes out in the press conference, the Florida coach afterwards, after getting beat on a last second field goal and says, we need to pack the swamp. He comes back to Gainesville and he hears from the athletic director. No, we don't. Well, the governor says we can. Well, the president says we shouldn't and our policy is not to, and we're going to listen to the CDC. That dynamic that's playing out on these college campuses, I would expect this, a similar thing plays out in the NFL. If we start to see fans in, um, you know, in more in Pittsburgh, more in Philadelphia, more in Baltimore, more in where, what is it, you know, do they start looking at each other and say, cause again, if it's at 12,000, doesn't really matter. Um, but if people do start to open up in, in Texas and, and we start to see more in Houston or more in Dallas and oh, by the way, where's the league going to stand on that? Is there a competitive balance question here where the league would have to come in and say, hey, there's there's this limit that we're comfortable with. What are you hearing in that regard? And what have you seen in that regard thus far from the league? Well, I think the league is content to let some competitive balance issues go, um, mostly because even on the high end, best case scenario about fans and stadiums, you're still capped at that roughly quarter to maybe a third attendance under CDC rules. I don't think they're going to lose too much sleep over the possible competitive advantage of having 12,000 versus 6,000 or whatever. Right. And as far as that pressure and that whole uh, Florida Gators thing goes, that was, you you talk about football guys thinking about the business stuff and saying, you know, ignorant or, or, you know, 
incorrect things. That that's going to happen everywhere in the NFL. There's no amount of pressure that's going to turn cities, uh, mayors, and governors, and the NFL front offices suddenly to see the light about anything appro- uh, remotely approaching full capacities. I do think the NFL, and we're seeing in New Orleans, is getting a little punchier and a lot more confident in its position that zero is an unreal uh, is an overly restrictive and excessively risk averse number that that there is a perfectly fair perfectly reasonable amount of fans that can be allowed into these games safely and that number is you know somewhere in the five to twenty thousand range depending on the stadium more than that they're going to be as anti that as anybody just because the last thing they want is a big outbreak but they believe you know at those ten thousand levels roughly speaking the cities are being fairly ridiculous and not allowing that to happen because they're pretty confident in the plan they've got. Well, and then that makes us think ahead. We had the conversation not long ago about what is it, what does a Super Bowl in Florida mean? Because again, you've got a governor that's a, that that is now they are at a hundred percent capacity is allowed. And what do you think the Super Bowl organizing committee in Tampa is going to have to say about that? And what's that conversation going to be like with the NFL? Is that evolving? You think at all, or do you still think that it stays the way it stands? Yeah, I mean, I guess I haven't made calls on the Super Bowl thing in, in really super recently, so I couldn't tell you if there's been a lot of recent movement on that. My my general sense of things there is that it's the Super Bowl. It's sort of a special case. Florida is very laid back about this. You probably are going to get higher than the 25%, but still I would have very modest expectations about big numbers in that stadium, unless something changes. I, I still think the NFL is going to take the position that we can't afford to be a super spreader event or even be perceived as being, you know, out of step with, with common sense safety. Um, you know, I reported a couple of weeks ago that there's a contingency plan that would be at like 45 or 47% of Tam- of Raymond James capacity. I think that seems fairly possible given the governor's position in Florida and all that, but Ah, it's just the NFL is not. I, I just I can't see that right, what we know right now that they're going to fill that stadium for the Super Bowl. Yeah, I I I, I can't either. What uh, so what else are you watching around the league as as we wrap up here this morning? Well, a couple of nuanced little things here and there would normally be big deals, um, but they're not compared to uh, just making sure the season gets off. Um, you know, the NFL ratings are down about ten percent across the board compared to last year. There are some bright spots. Monday night's doing better than some other windows. Um, the league has gotten a lot more forceful about you know, saying, actually, that's great. It's less of a decline than in 2016, the last presidential election season. And yesterday, I thought it was interesting, rhetorically on the conference call, um, I asked Goodell about the ratings. And he didn't just talk about you know the numbers and how he thought that actually being down 10% isn't so bad. He emphasized a couple of times the gap between the NFL and everybody else, which, of course, is most relevant from a business standpoint. He, uh, you know, noted that other sports are down more entertainment, you know, scheduled entertainment falling off a cliff, like always. And that, you know, while the NFL is down compared to other programming, it's still extraordinarily good. And he believes that they're putting space between us and everybody else, which um, is not an inaccurate view to it. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting ahead of the ratings narrative right now and, and emphasizing what you know, they, they see as actually good news, which is interesting. Well, it is interesting as we think back to, again, coming out of this and when, when we saw resumption in August, 
so much of the conversation was when we get to this part of the year where you've got the NBA finals, the World Series, NFL on Sundays, college football could be back, which it turns out it is in many cases. Um, you looked at all that and, and NASCAR would still be going on and in, in, into its uh, postseason chase and you would have golf majors and you would have ten, you would have all these things and what would happen and who would be the winner. And it's interesting to see. I'm not sure there's been one. I, I think there have been survivors. And again, I think in aggregate, there is, I think sports viewing is up. I believe that I, I, I saw that um, emanate from, uh, from, from some of the bright lights of, uh, of social media recently. So I, I think overall sports viewing is up, um, but not the winners or losers that we necessarily projected and certainly more losers than winners. If you just compare to before, and again, in a, one of those things that we often talked about was, well, people don't have much else to do. Well, they seem to have found other things to do. Maybe it's a reminder that half of the half of this country really doesn't care, you know care one way or the other about any sport. Yeah, I think that's been. Um, I think us in the sports world saw these schedules coming together in June and July. Like, oh my god, these weekends are going to be nothing but wall to wall sports. And like, my wife likes sports. She's not your you know stereotypical Andy Cap wife complaining that I'm dominating our time free time with sports. Just we want to do other things with our weekends too. And because of my job, I'm already mostly in front of the TV watching NFL for 12 hours or whatever on Sundays. The last thing I want to do is that same Friday night, watch a three hour NBA game. So, and not to mention all the college football. So I make choices. I have other things in my life that competes with sports. And I think to the, the crowdedness um, has reminded us that sports is not the be all end all. And if the NBA finals is going to take place in June, when there's not much else going on, and I'm conditionally trained to watch for the NBA finals, I'll watch it. But I have, I didn't watch a second of it this year, which is slightly surprising, but I'm just a little overwhelmed. And I don't think I'm so out of line with, uh, with the rest of the world. And we've all got a lot on our minds and you're right. Some are doing better than others, but nobody's really crushing it. From a viewership standpoint. All right. Great stuff. Ben Fisher. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Bill.